0: The interesting thing is that from the perspective of a router, this looks just like TraceRoute today. So there's nothing else the router needs to do. And that was also one of the design goals. We should not touch routers because if that is one of the the things you have to do, then you have to be Cisco or Huawei or one of the big vendors to push that and have a big business use case for that.
1: You're listening to Ping, a podcast by APNIC discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, George Michelson. This time, we're talking to Rolf Winter from the Hochschule Augsburg in Germany. Rolf and his co-author have been working on a mechanism to implement Traceroute, but for the other half of the end-to-end path. It's a fascinating problem and incurs a need for some IETF standards activity to complement their work. So hello, everyone. Welcome back to Ping again. And today we have
0: Professor Rolf Winters from the University of Augsburg. Hello, Rolf. Hey, thanks for having me and talk about my special topic.
1: So just to give people an impression of you, you've been active in IETF
0: mailing lists since the
1: mid-2000s, since around 2009, that's right?
0: That's correct. Yeah, I've been active at the ITF for a really long time, but uh, I was employed at a network hardware vendor at the time. So right. I was working for them and I did internet stands in various areas such as MPLS, energy management and things like that. The energy management topic is actually coming back to bite us. There's a new working
1: group in conversation. Yeah, it is coming back. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's fascinating. But you're here today to talk to us about Traceroute. Right. I love talking about Traceroute because everybody misunderstands this tool. Exactly. And like Ping, everybody misuses this tool. Right. But you're actually
0: here to talk about a slightly different take on Traceroute, aren't you? So I'm here to talk about reverse Traceroute. So you already said correctly that a lot of people are misinterpreting the output of trace route, And there's actually at Nanoc there's a re- semi-regular talk about this. Uh, by Richard Steenbergen and he's he's talking about the things you might do wrong when you look at trace route output yeah and one of the things that you might misinterpret is that when you see latency spikes in that persist in your in your trace route output you might misinterpret this to be on your forward path so the the fact about the internet is that paths are highly asymmetric oh completely completely And the problem is that, for example, if you send, if you have a, I don't know, a TCP session somewhere and you realize you have problems, you might do a traceroute and you see latency go up somewhere inside of the network. But that might be the X, so it might be on the reverse path. Yeah. And from traceroute alone, you don't see that. Right. And that's the fundamental
1: thing that we need people to understand about traceroute. Classic behavior here is that what we're doing is we're exploiting the TTL, the time to live field of the IP packet structure. Right. And by default, it has a high value, typically higher than the number of measured points across the network that are permitted to decrement it. So in practice, most of the time, TTL is only there to cope with the situation that something goes weird in a path and a packet goes through too many hops or starts looping, and that's why it's going to die. But in Traceroute, you set the TTL deliberately to a low number.
0: Exactly. And this way, basically, TraceRoute illuminates the path. So you basically get the sequence of routers that your packet goes through, but only in the forward direction. And as each router
1: receives a packet and sends it on, it decrements the TTL. And the router who decrements the TTL to zero has an obligation in the protocol to send an unreachable response. And TraceRoute is using this information to enumerate, well, who were you? Because that's part of the diagnostic information. Exactly. But inherently, this is building a model of the things that you say exist in your path as you increment the TTL. You're exploring further and further nodes in your direction
0: forward. When you look at all the tools we have, so the ITF has specified a lot of tools for us to manage nodes in the network such as SNMP or IPFIX, or we have Young and NetConf or RESTConf, and all these nice protocols and data models to estimate the health of the network and to do something about it when something goes wrong. But that only applies to your network. So you can't do SNMP on the public internet, or you can't do IPFIX or Young and NetConf. Of course not on the public internet. That would be a security risk. But you can't do ICMP and traceroute Exactly. So the only thing you have on the public internet is ping, And Traceroute, that's the only thing you actually have. ping is not very expressive. So it gives you interface reachability, but it doesn't tell you whether a service is alive or anything like that. And Traceroute gives you the same information. It gives you a round-trip time estimate to the destination. But it also, as you said, enumerates the routers on the path from you towards that destination. So you and your co-authors have been thinking about approaches to constructing a model to
1: get the other half of the story.
0: And it's not new. So actually, we're not the first ones to think about this. And even the IETF has thought about this. So the first work I found in this direction was from 93, so 30 years ago. (laughs) And... Yeah. (laughs) A long time. A long time ago. And uh, as with so many things from the IETF, I don't think it has ever been really implemented or used on the public internet. But there was an RFC, it was RFC uh, 1393. It was called Traceroute Using an IP Option. So you could do a traceroute using that option and you could also figure out the reverse path using that option. And you could also do something with IPv6 and there's an SNMP MIP definition for a remote ping traceroute and lookup operations. But again, SNMP is not something that is available to you on the public internet. So we looked at all the things that, that have been specified so far and we tried to come up with design goals where we thought this is where they went wrong. And then from that, construct a protocol that maybe does something different and hopefully right so it's deployable on the public internet.
1: So most things that are attempting to make the other end of a two-part communication perform a service require active code on the other end. You actually have to have an endpoint that they're prepared to make available that's going to do a thing on
0: you. You're no different in this respect, are you? we are no different at all. So we are just like ping, right? So ping is baked into every operating system and it just sits there and will respond, at least if it's switched on, right? Yeah. And so the same is for traceroute. It's in the operating system, it sits there, and if the TTL is decremented to zero, it will send your packet back. And something similar we are trying. So it's, it's actually what we're doing is based on ICMP, just like ping and traceroute. So ping is, is based on ICMP explicitly, so the request is ICMP and the response is ICMP. And traceroute is implicitly ICMP because you send typically a UDP packet and it elicits or it makes the router send an ICMP time exceeded message back to you. Will you be defining a
1: new logical packet structure which is analogous to traceroute but is applicable in
0: the reverse path? Are you able to reuse that structure? So we're basically defining an ICMP request to send a single packet. So there's a lot of problems with designing a protocol like this. So one of our design goals was safe to use. <laughs> yeah. So if you send a single packet and another host does a trace route for you, that smells a little bit like amplification attack, for example. So what you can do is something similar to ping. So when you send a ping out, you get a response back. And we do something similar for every single packet for a trace route that you want somebody else to send on your behalf you have to send a request for that.
1: So there's no amplification because you don't generate the entire series of path elements. You have to explore the path through explicit requests right. and
0: generate a one-in-one-out outcome to stay below the threshold. It's not quite one-in-one-out, but it's close enough. So we send one packet out as a request and the host that is actually performing the trace route will send one packet out. will obviously get the response, the TTL time ex- exceeded and then send the result basically back.
1: So it's a little bit more work. When you consider the amplification attack benefits are typically measured as 5 or 10 or 20 to 1. Yeah, exactly. You are below a threshold where there are cheaper mechanisms for DDoS. So I can understand there would be a queue of people at a microphone in a working group to say amplification, but
0: you have a case It's not going to be that bad. Exactly. So I'd rather use DNS for amplification index. Oh, we don't make that recommendation here. We don't make that recommendation, but if I was to create an amplification attack, I probably would look somewhere else. This is
1: quite interesting because at the point that you propose change to the standard at the layer of ICMP, you are actually reaching quite a long way back into the history of the IP stack. These are aspects of the design of IP that haven't been heavily modified over the years. I was looking through the RFC site list for your document. You have a document, it's a zero-stage draft, so this is early stage, and you mention deprecation of a prior document, and when you look at that, it in turn mentioned deprecation of prior documents, (laughs) and you kind of trace the footprint back, almost like forming a reverse path. (laughs) But you come to these foundational documents that are very early state. So mm-hmm. you're going to be adding new
0: state to ICMP. So actually, ICMP has been changed a number of times during the years. So yeah. multi-part messages has been added to ICMP. And then there was also a document, which is important for us, that was basically a document describing what you actually are supposed to use ICMP for and what you shouldn't use ICMP for. And yeah. we fall exactly into that definition where it says, OK. Troubleshooting is obviously something that ICMPs is made for. This is an aspect of the design of systems where early stage you get to
1: doing crazy things and put documents out in people code, roll forward 40 or 50 years to start proposing a new thing. You actually have to go back in the stacks and you have to line up quite a lot of parts of the story to be able to propose a modification.
0: Yeah. And I think adding a new type has been done fairly recently, too. So that, that is something that has been done fairly recently. So I think the most controversial part of our work is the code point we are suggesting. So the, right. the ICMP type and ICMP code that we are suggesting to be used for this work, that is something that I believe will be very controversial.
1: Let's come to that in a second. Yeah. In the internet, it's kind of permissionless programming. The shape of an IP packet is defined. And there are certain qualities. If you put random state or unexpected state, intermediate devices might go, oh, scary, and drop them. But you've been able to perform active experimentation. You can own a sender and a receiver. You can actually use public networks to find out how packets flow. So when you make proposals for things like code point changes, you've already found out the behavior of the system at large, haven't you?
0: Yeah, we have. Right. We did a number of measurements. So we did basically two measurements. So one of our design goals was that it's basically immediately deployable. So we want to have it deployed on today's internet. And that is very difficult, as you know, because the internet is ossified, in particular through middle boxes. Yeah. And so one of the things we did was we have a a large number of implementations of NET in our our lab. And clearly a NET, so if it's TCP, it remembers port numbers and IP addresses. And if it's ICMP, there's no port numbers in there. So it needs something else to multiplex on. And that's typically type code IDs and such, depending on the ICMP type. So what we did was we picked various types and codes and sent packets that don't exist. So basically would reserved by us, like type 7 or type 252 for ICMP that are currently, so we we picked a low number and a high number and sent them through those net boxes. And it turns out hardly any nuts would forward those packets. They would drop those packets. Again, kind of a footnote, there's a
1: behavior in protocol development which can cause huge problems in the standard space, which is effectively type code squatting. And that's where people do what you've done. But rather than going into the formalism of saying, let's register, they just use and ship code. Right, And that brings us back up to the code point question, because you're not doing mm-hmm. this. You're actually coming into the formalism saying, please, can we get a formal assignment of a code point here?
0: Right. That's what we want. And we, we try to figure out which one would be a good code point to use. So it's deployable on today's internet. And you've tested both low value and high
1: value in a number field that's quite rich. Right. But most of that field is typically reserved. That's the usual behavior.
0: Right. So half of the NETs basically dropped those packets so that they won't make it from your home network into the public internet. Yeah. And the other half did something interesting. So the nut basically got the packet and said, oh, I don't know this code point. I've never seen this before. So I'm not going to translate the IP address, but I send it into the public internet. So it would send the packet with a private IP address as the sender into the public internet. You know, that's fascinating.
1: (laughs) During the time that we were trying to assess the quality of the final slash eights for handout in address management, we did slash eight announcements in BGP looking at the range of addresses that came back. And one of the signatures we kept finding is an astronomical number of people using private IP in the default free zone, sending packets from those addresses. And you sit there and you think, how did anyone let that happen? And here you are (laughs) saying, typical home router, there's a whole family of them that say, oh, wow, I've never seen this
0: option before. I think I'll forward this packet with the internal address. Right. As is. So unmodified would send it unmodified. Wow. That's great. But for us, this was bad news, though. So if we use a new type, ICMP type, it will probably not be deployable today because most people are behind the net today. So operators will probably be able to use it because there's no firewall or nut in the space where they operate. But for a typical home user, they will probably for a long time not be able to use reverse trace route. So we did we tried something else. So if you look at the protocol, in a sense, it's a little bit what ping does, right? You send a packet somewhere and they respond with something. So we said, let's use type 8 for the request, which is what ping is using, but ping is using the code point for the code, it uses 0. So the combination 8 0 is an ICMP echo request and 0, 0 is an ICMP echo response. So that's what what ping is using. So we can multiplex on the code. So let's use a different code, we we thought. Let's use type 8, but code 1 And let's also look at code two. So we have two codes, but with a ping code point. And that was interesting too, So because most NUTs, with the exception of one, did forward those packets. They would translate the packet, leave the code intact and the type intact. So this would go out on the public internet and even the sender IP address is properly translated.
1: This survived transition through intermediate router systems, it's not typically
0: seen as a threatening change in an ICMP flow. Right. So that was good for us. So we thought, maybe we can work with that. But the bigger question then comes, how do hosts on the internet respond to that? So it goes through those middle boxes, it, let's say, avoids the ossification, but how, if it actually makes it to the endpoint, how would an endpoint react? So we looked at that too. So we did that on IPv4 because you can guess IPv4 addresses and actually find a host behind it more easily than on IPv6. So
1: There is a whole topic of conversation on the guessability (laughs) of assigned V6 subnets. that's, That's a story for another day. So you're exploring the space of, in practical terms, can you demonstrate functionality of being able to use this combination of code point and type? Now, in hosts, typically, there's the no firewall or firewall state. The host can make a decision to run its own packet filtering, and the packet filter recipes are very often pre-canned. So the different Linux distros would have them, Windows would have them. But if you install a boundary firewall or a VPN, Cisco VPN, for instance, you are very likely to be given a suite of protections to put around your own host. And you were exploring this space. What do hosts do?
0: Right. So what we did was we picked 10 million IPv4 addresses at random and we would send those packets. So first we would send them a ping, basically, to see if somebody's there. And validate they were prepared to respond to an unmodified ping. ICMP goes through. That is basically what it proves to us. So they would respond to ICMP in general. So there's somebody answering. And from those 10 million IPv4 addresses, 1 million responded to our ping requests. So you're looking at a rate roughly of 1 in 10 has a low boundary
1: to receive anything, any ICMP. Then from that cohort, you can test for ICMP with modified code point.
0: Exactly. That's what you did. to those million IP addresses, we sent an ICMP packet with a type 8 code 1. So this is something that doesn't exist yet. And we wanted to see how they respond. And that was also very interesting. So from those roundabout a million hosts, 930,000, so most of them, they actually reflected this back to us. So they responded with type 0 code 1. So, so their packet
1: return structure. Which normally would have done a response with a zero zero,
0: echoed back your your setting. Right. And that was interesting because this goes through. This is basically telling us that it goes through and then tells respond. you both
1: directions of flow because given the asymmetry in the path, this also told you the non-symmetric component of return path, its acceptability for that.
0: Right. And only about forty thousand would filter, so they would not send something back? And some would be, we call that unreflective. So they would not reflect the code point back, but they, they would actually answer a, a regular ping. So it was code zero, uh, type zero. And some, like 650 roughly, so not, not a lot, they would send something completely different back. So most of them would send a destination unreachable back. <laughs> this is quite interesting.
1: There's the small moment of the classic question of research on the public internet, does this meet... An ethics question, well, ICMP is not in any sense a bad packet. So your barrier to acceptability to send one and get one in random addresses, this is extremely low. I don't think you have a problem there. You're sending a packet type, which is a little unusual. Mm -hmm. But again, the most likely outcome is either rejection or completion. The idea that this is a packet of death is extremely unlikely because that would have been randomly tested anyway from fuzzing of network protocols. So again, you're in a fairly safe space. You get a cohort of respondees, and it's quite large, and the overwhelming majority, well above 95%, are responsive, and you have a small cohort who are silent and a small cohort who send classic ICMP responses. But the overall signal is there is no host barrier, to use of this combination of settings in the packet. So in some senses, you've explored the space, but you've said you see the code point request as controversial. Is this now evidence that helps to reduce your
0: burden of risk
1: in requesting a code point?
0: So we would hope so. So it it isn't controversial yet because the draft, unfortunately, isn't very widely discussed yet. It's an interior draft, isn't it? It's an interior draft, exactly. It might be discussed in Ops, potentially, I could see that. I've sent an email to Ops saying, this thing is here, have a look at it, but that hasn't really worked out uh, well. So we got a lot of private responses, right? but no public responses to our work. We would rather have the public ones, even if it's controversial, <laughs> yeah. than positive private ones. I think this
1: is interesting, and I think you have a very nice measure there of tolerance for variance in packet structure. In modern firewalling and NAT, I have to say, the NAT behavior of passing the unadjusted IP, that's really weird. <laughs> that's just great. Could you talk a little bit about how you did this? Because the technology of adding new packet behaviors is in itself quite interesting. What did you do to
0: make this happen? Actually, we have implemented all of this. So it's available for use, it's public on our GitHub. And you can download it and use the client and you can use the server as well. And there's also already four public instances. So BKIX, the Berlin Internet Exchange, is hosting one. Then there's an internet provider in Germany is hosting one. We are hosting one. And Freifunk Munich are hosting one at this point. Right. And a couple of other operators has, have agreed to host the public reverse trace route server instance. So you can actually use it on today's internet already. And we have the client as well.
1: And you've written this using eBPF. Yes, we have. So, this is in the kernel engine, low in the OS, using that right. coded mechanism. Now, on Ping, we love eBPF. It's been discussed by NLNet Labs as a mechanism for doing introspection in the DNS and for doing fast
0: packet assessment. Mm-hmm. It's a very interesting tool. Tell me a little bit about that development. So, we wanted to have it. Somewhere in the kernel, because that's where we believe it belongs, just like ping and, and ICMP processing. It's all in kernels today, so we believed it should be there. But it's hard to upstream something to the Linux kernel, so we didn't want to implement it right into the kernel code, but we want to have it fairly close. So there, there leaves two things. A kernel module, which is difficult to maintain because if the internal API changes inside of the kernel, so the user API of Linux never changes, but the internal kernel API does change. So we would need to make changes, but eBPF has a stable API as well, and it lives in the kernel.
1: And you can construct a scripted statement if you like a program in eBPF, distribute that from your own GitHub, and any modern Linux kernel is able to take that, compile that, and inject that into their run state to introspect and interact
0: in the network exchange. And it's high performance too. So it doesn't have to punt things up into user space and do memory copies there. So it's, it's also be, it's high performance too. Do you build a large amount of state in the kernel in your model or is this really just send reply gone? You don't build up a
1: cached state?
0: So we have actually, we implemented two versions of it. So one is the one that we have submitted to the ITF and there is state. So we have a map in there to remember the trace route packet I sent out into the network.
1: And you would need that in order to do the counted exploration of the path. Although you said at the beginning that in order to do path exploration, your remote side, the person of interest, must ask you explicitly to rehearse the next component of path.
0: Exactly. So for every packet we send, we need a request for that. And we will memorize that. But we have also implemented a stateless version where every piece of information we need is basically in packet we send out. And when we get a response back, we extract that information back from the packet and then send the response. But that is actually very difficult. So it's because when you get a TTL expired message back, the standard only guarantees you, I think, 64-bit of the original IP packet being in there. So a lot of routers will send you more, but the standard only guarantees you 64-bit and you have to work with those 64-bits. So you have a very small bitmap to work in, but you could potentially
1: have a small amount of state information or perhaps a lookup key to a least recently used ring buffer. You could have an assigned limit of use in the kernel. Might need a checksum, but in principle, I can see you could do state maintenance with a specific client in a constrained manner through this. I love eBPF. I think that's a really nice choice of tool. But my concern, if I had one, would be that one of the necessary components of deployment for a measurement technique like this is supporting the routing framework as well. And so far, you've only been talking about hosted implementation. Do you foresee the potential for this to become something that gets embedded in the intermediate routing architecture?
0: So the interesting thing is that from the perspective of a router, this looks just like TraceRoute today. So there's nothing else the router needs to do. And that was also one of the design goals. We should not touch routers because if that is one of the, the things you have to do, then you have to be Cisco or Huawei or one of the big vendors to push that and have a big use case, a big business use case for that.
1: Right. So rather than asking router vendors to include a new code module to introspect on packets directed at them in order to be an endpoint and go back. If you like an additional looking glass function, you've deliberately said, we don't need that as long as a host on the other side can pass through a router, it can measure that router as contributing to the return path.
0: So there's no router changes needed. And I think that's important if you talk about things like deployability or acceptance also, because you might get especially if if a router needs to to do a lot of work. But traceroute routers already do, and there's nothing else they need to support for reverse traceroute to work. Because from the packets that the server sends, for a router, it just looks like a regular traceroute. The TTL expires, it will send an ICMP time exceeded back, and we report that back to the requester.
1: This sounds like something which potentially would lie in the capability of the Atlas project collector nodes to
0: implement? Have you been discussing this with labs at RIPE? So we've been discussing this with NL Ring. And they also have, I think, like 500 something servers. And they are currently testing it. So one of the contributors to Ring is testing it. And if he gives his thumbs up, they will probably deploy it on Ring. Atlas is a bit more more difficult. But the nice thing about Atlas is we can do regular trace routes from the probes. And actually, what our servers will send is just regular trace routes, and we can also do Paris trace route. So we have implemented yeah. Paris trace route, which basically gives you a view of the multipathing on that path between you and the destination on the network. So you will see, like in regular trace route, you sometimes see two IP addresses for the same hop, and that's multipathing, because for one expired TTL, you will see one IP address, and the second packet will be responded from a different IP address, but it's the same hop. It was the same TTL.
1: Well, it depends. Some routing planes have a very strong affinity for the source and destination address passing through and simply won't explore the alternate path. So I imagine not all multipaths are exposed this way, but it's still a useful indication. I think Ring would be a brilliant stepping stone to a larger deployment. Obviously, the goal would be to have this first class, you know, Linux kernel distribution, but that's reaching ahead. As you said, it's quite a steep burden to become part of a distribution. Whereas an eBPF compilable script is an easy deploy. But if you get deployment in Ring, and you get some persisting evidence of low risk, high benefit, that's a lovely model. Because Ring is instances of virtual hosts or standalone bare metal hosts running Linux. So it's a very low barrier. By the way, do you use the eBPF versions, which would work in BSD, because some of the extended features are Linux-specific, but
0: the origins of BPF are actually BSD. Even worse. So, so that's a hard lesson we learned as well. So we use some timer component from eBPF, which is only available in, I think, Linux 5.15, which doesn't sound so recent, but it's recent enough that a lot of people actually told us this is too recent. <laughs> So a lot of people that actually wanted to help us and say, can you do this for a a way old, actually way older Linux kernel? And we said, well, unfortunately, no, because we're using one feature that is only available since version 5.15.
1: You kind of have to set a barrier at some level. There is a point where you say we didn't reach far back in the architecture. It does have the downside that you may have to wait for wider deployment, but I think it's a good logic to do that. But you touched on the issue that your draft is in interior. How are you going in terms of engagement in the wide? You mentioned that you have deployments in the Berlin Exchange. Are you also discussing this in the operator community?
0: We are. So I was at uh, DNOC 14 in November, and that is the German network operator group. And this is basically like NANOC, just with a German focus. And that's where the the operators and the people that actually operate networks is not the management. Well, management sometimes goes to, but it's really people that configure routers that design networks that are very close to the actual technology. And we presented it there. There's also a video online and on YouTube that you can watch. We'll try and remember to include links to those in the blog article and related materials we do. And the feedback there was was actually brilliant. So a lot of people liked it and they had to cut off the discussion because the next talk would start and, and people came to me after the talk and and most people are actually... They would like it today rather than, than tomorrow. And because the example I gave was two days before my talk, somebody sent an email to the DNOG mailing list that said, I have this trace route and it looks weird. Can somebody from this network send a trace route back so I can see where the problem is?
1: And that's the classic thing that you see in operations lists is people begging somebody in another remote AS to engage with them in a path debug, which would be of benefit to that AS Right. But nobody's there to respond. And you start to see this traffic where someone says, hi, do you know anyone from this upgrade? And what you're offering them is a platform that says, well, for the fundamental measures, if you can't find looking glass, if you can't do this using introspection through routing level plane, you might be able to do this if they were prepared to do reverse trace.
0: Right, and they do this via mail, and it's 2023, right? So there's there's a mailing list. (laughs) That has this functionality and it would be really nice if we have this in host so people don't have to ask people on the mailing list to, to to do an actual reverse trace route for them. So you had good engagement
1: in DENOG and I feel this is something that would get traction in NANOG or in SANOG or JANOG. It feels like it has the kind of engagement that's a good, useful development. But I'm getting a feeling you're not getting the engagement you feel it needs inside the IETF process yet.
0: Right. So when I first started in the IETF, and then from that time on, people always said there's not enough operators in the IETF. Yeah. And we're talking back in
1: 2009, 2010, and you were working in a context which actually needed operational engagement.
0: So at the time and later on, I was working a lot with MPLS, but I was Maybe not always at the IETF, but I was in contact with operators and and we talked and we asked what they would like to see in the protocol. And so there was engagement, but it wasn't always public. That was probably the problem. So people wouldn't see it because we would, it's just faster to go to somebody and say, so you tell me what you think. And then we think about it and maybe we make it part of the standard. And then they don't have to go to the IETF and engage there. And I never felt that there's not enough operator engagement because I engage with operators quite a lot. But now I actually have this meeting.
1: Yeah, but now you re-enter and you're in a different form of engagement and you're proposing structural change and new code point selection in the parts of the IP stack that are globally applicable. That's a really quite large amount of change and you're not seeing quite enough operator engagement.
0: So this is a weird thing. So when I talk to operators at DNOC, for example, they really like it and they think the functionality is important because for troubleshooting, this is what they would like to have. And I would also imagine that a lot of people that, these days there's a lot of services in the cloud. So you're relying on a connection to that cloud. So you're lightning on the internet and if something is, is broken there, you probably want to debug it. But today you can debug one half of your path, but you can't debug the other one. So you're kind of blind to a lot of the issues you might encounter on the internet. So I think a lot of people would benefit from this, not only operators. And then I got feedback in private, also from people that work at operators. They said, okay, this is good, but they're not engaging in the IETF. But the problem is, you know the IETF, I don't even get a slot for the working group if it's not discussed on the mailing list. So There's
1: a bootstrap problem, isn't there? Getting traction is hard. I've noticed several groups have started to introduce a formalism that they're holding back 15 to 20 minutes at the back end of their working group slot for new ideas and new work. And it's kind of like a version of the student poster session at a peer review conference. Here you are with a body of work. It hasn't made it through that initial guardian and gatekeeping, but there's a 15-minute slot to put new ideas on the table, gauge, enthusiasm, get engagement. I think it feels like you need a mechanism like that.
0: So what I did was at the last IETF, I had a slot at Hot RFC. So we, are, we have a very short, I don't know if it's three minutes, I think, or five minutes, where we have a very short time to introduce something that might be interesting to people. And nothing really came out of that. But a number of things we're still planning to do marketing wise. So we go on podcasts like Ping and talk oh, about it. <laughs>
1: marketing. Well, here we are. I think it's good that you get a chance to discuss the outreach aspect because let's be real, this is how we generate engagement in what's going on. People need to see enthusiasm and different senses of why they should engage in the standards work at play. I think that there's a good future for this work. I don't think this is one to give up on. And I think it's possible that hackathon or the ring engagement is going to give you a vehicle for more publication outcome that goes to operationally focused groups. I mean, obviously, PAM and IMC are the places to go for measurement. But you're kind of in this interesting space that there's the measurement component of academic interest, but there are strong operational implications here.
0: And one thing which you still have to do is, is go to Nanoc and basically use that mailing list to publicize our work. We held off a little bit. We will do this soon, but we held off a little bit because our IPv6 implementation wasn't done yet. And a lot of people said, without IPv6, this is a no-go. <laughs> and then we said, all right, let's wait for IPv6. Modern internet is dual-stack.
1: You could make use of slightly different structural behaviors in the ICMPv6 packet. Are you using extension headers and similar mechanisms to do this?
0: No, not at all. So what we are using is, is the multi-part message format for ICMP. So where we add information to the ICMP. Header itself using that extension mechanism.
1: That's probably a wise move because the extension header model, Fernando Gond, has been doing a lot of work showing that the reachability with multiple
0: extension headers, it's down. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah, it's the same thing with IP options. If you rely on IP options, it's probably not going to work because routers will probably not like it. Firewalls will strip it off. Also, there's other code points that are basically unusable, something like DivServe code points. If you work with them, they will be stripped. So there's a lot of research that shows that they will not make it through the internet. They will be stripped at some point. And I, I think keeping it every, everything in ICMP, which is typically only processed at the end hosts, is a safe bet in that respect.
1: So a little bit more work to become fully V6 compliant, a dual stack solution, eBPF, so easy to deploy. Ring gives you a larger footprint of visibility around the world that leads to potentially some published outcomes of visible path asymmetry behaviors in the global
0: network. I think this is very interesting, Rolf. I think this stuff has strong potential. We think so too, but the only thing that's left now is support from from the community. (laughs) Well, let's generate a bit of buzz and see if we can get people interested. Thank
1: you very much for agreeing to come on Ping and talk about this. That was fascinating. Well, thanks for having me. If you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, why not get in contact by email to ping at apnic.net or via the APNIC social media channels. Also, remember the measurement at apnick.net mailing list on Orbit is there to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, or to seek feedback from the community on your own measurement projects. Be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time,